All right, good evening, everybody. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus' triumphal entry. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the honor and privilege to sit at your feet and to hear your word and to um, let you change us from the inside out. That's why we're here. And um, we pray your Holy Spirit would have his way. Very present here and in the children's ministry, and we pray that um, we would bring you honor and glory and give you the respect you deserve tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. That's been coming up a lot in my own quiet time is the respect of God, giving God respect, and what that looks like in different ways. I kind of know, or I thought I knew, but there's a whole lot more that we can do to give Him respect. And of course, the first one, the most important one, is Jesus is constantly telling everybody to listen. <laughs> If you have ears to hear, um, and that is that's the most that's the most difficult thing in any classroom setting. If you're teaching kids, listen up. I mean, how many times does a teacher or principal or whatever say, "Listen up"? Uh, even in Cub Scouts, I remember my pack leader having to do wolf ears, which meant we all had to listen. You know, kind of thing. Just listening is the most respectful thing we can do for God. He has so much to say to us and wants to give to us and to just not act like I know already, you know, to just sit at his feet and say, whatever you're telling me is brand new or whatever you're telling me is something I need to hear, even if it's a reminder, even if I've heard it a hundred times, you're telling me this as my God because I must need to hear it now. And so just that listening. The prophets tried to tell the nation of Israel over and over again that Jesus was coming, that the Messiah was coming. He was coming twice, the first and second coming. Even gave them dates to go off of. We've been studying that on Sunday mornings. If you're here with us on Sunday mornings, we've been going over that, that from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, you could start the clock at that point and have an exact day and time for this chapter right here when Jesus would come in on the donkey. There are even prophecies about how the Messiah would come in on a donkey. There's even a prophecy on what the people will say about him as he comes in on the donkey, and all are fulfilled in this chapter. And everybody was surprised by it because they were told, but they didn't listen. And so listening is the most important thing, the most respectful thing we can give God. He has just got done teaching but who's the greatest is, it's by serving. It's why he comes in lowly on a donkey. He's not coming in on a white stallion with some great helmet and red, you know, like the Romans would. He's coming in on a donkey lowly because he's here to serve. He's here to help. Still the most important person on earth, the most should be, the most revered person on earth, but doesn't need the horse to proclaim that. It's his character, it's who he is, it's how he acts, it's how he behaves, is what's supposed to bring people to that place of respect. He should be able to respect a humble person. But our society and the world teaches us otherwise, that we're not to respect humble people. Um, we're to look at them as weak or um, diminutive or whatever, and they're not worth our time. We need to conquer. We need to be bold. We need to be out there, you know, type A. And, and there's nothing wrong being type A. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you either are or you aren't. But to do it in such a way that it brings honor to God is a, it's a whole other animal there. Jesus comes in lowly on a donkey here trying to show them, look, I'm coming to serve. Let me show you as the king of the universe, the king of the world, comes in to set the world free from their sins I just wonder how many of the guys behind him, because you know the 12 are following him, are disappointed. Because the uproar is huge. The parade, the pomp, the circumstance that the people are bringing to this event is enormous. The whole city is in an uproar. It says, who is this man? And the, and the, the multitude that's following him and chanting, you know, Jesus, Jesus. They all say, it's him, it's him, it's the prophet from... Nazareth, it's the Messiah. But Jesus isn't coming in. He doesn't match up, you know. 
It's like wearing a tank top and flip-flops to a wedding or something. It's like you just don't match the event. So I wonder if the 12 are trying to make it look better. You know, here he is. Maybe they walked a little lower so the donkey looked a little bigger. I can do that with Jesus sometimes in my own life. I remember trying to minister to my neighbors. I wasn't saved when I was a little kid. But I wanted to not look stupid to my atheist neighbors that I would go to church or that I went to Easter or that I went to Christmas services. And so I would talk it up like they were missing out, but not about Jesus. I made stuff up. Like, you should see the stocking our church has. It's full of candy, and the kid who comes to church the most gets to win that giant stocking, and they're like, really? And so it was candy, you know. Instead of talking about my Savior and the love of my life or anything like that, it was more about talking up, you know, and so the world wouldn't think I was a fool. So I'd walk a little lower to make the donkey look a little bit bigger. And I'm embarrassed about that now. And I, you know, you have those moments. I'm a little kid. God gets it. He knows I'm a little kid. I was a little kid. But you still think about those times and think, oh, I'm sorry. Didn't get it. Didn't understand it. But I do now, I think, and I'm getting better at it. And so verse 1, as he begins this march into Jerusalem, at the same time he's coming in on the white donkey, on the other gate, the sheep gate, all the sheep for the Passover lambs are being brought in. This is prophetic as well. All the lambs will be brought in the sheep gate. All the leaders, the priests, the elders would all be inspecting these sheep to make sure they were without spot, without blemish, that they were all males, that they weren't weak or lame or there was anything wrong with them, that they were perfect and acceptable sacrifice to God. And then they would be offered up for the sins of that family or for the sins of the nation, for the big, the big one-lammer. They would do that. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is coming in on the donkey at this time as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we'll spend this week, this holy week here, being examined by the rulers, the religious rulers, to see if they could find fault in this man. In fact, when it all comes down to it, we remember what Pontius Pilate says. As Jesus is there, the case has been laid out. He says, I find no fault in this man, which means he is the Lamb of God, perfect, holy, without spot, without blemish, that can take away the sin of the world. Now, he didn't know that. But at the same time, the high priest is saying these lambs are all good, so Pontius Pilate was saying, behold, I find no fault in this man. He's perfect. An acceptable sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. It's a miraculous thing in and of itself. I want you to go take two donkeys. And if anybody notices, if anybody says anything to you, be sure you let them know that the Lord has need of them. And they'll say, okay, who does that? What if someone was in your shed at five o'clock in the morning and walking away with your mower? What are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Be on your way then. No. Calling the police. Nope. Not when it comes to Jesus. Just tell him I need it. He'll get it back. Verse 4. All this was done, Matthew says, the tax collector changed, transformed by the, the love of Christ. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9 9. Written hundreds of years before Christ. Now, well, big deal. That's the kind of prophecy you can manipulate easily. I mean, you really could. If you had studied Zechariah 9.9, and you're trying to pretend to be the Messiah, and you know he comes in on a donkey, you could say, hey, for this to look right, you need to go get me a donkey. So I get that, the critics that say, well, that's a prophecy you really can't. I mean, you can't say, wow, you know. Well, you know, he could have done that. But Matthew just says, no, that's the first step. That's prophecy number one. To line all these up, to fulfill all these prophecies, you can't do this 
You know, you can't manufacture these. That one you probably could. I'll admit it. I think you could. I mean, it'd be weird to have someone just say, yeah, take my donkey and my colt, but that's, a, that's different. But Matthew says that was the beginning of these fulfillments. It's fulfilling. Regardless of whether Jesus is manipulating this one, which he's not, obviously, but it, you know, the critics say that he may have. Um, Matthew is not trying to get that across. He's not trying to bring the wow, which I think is important. A lot of times we look for the wow, and Matthew's like, no, I'm not telling you this to bring the wow so that you could be stunned that God's... Pro-. No, he's, I'm letting you know it's beginning. The time which wasn't at hand, the time which wasn't, we weren't ready for it. Be quiet, don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know who I am. We've heard that over and over again from Jesus as he heals people and opens their eyes. He tells them to be quiet. It's not time. Passes through the midst of them because it's not time. My time is not at hand. Matthew's letting us know now is the time. This is the day. This is the moment. I don't care about the wow factor or the prophecy. This is the beginning of the prophecy that was fulfilled or spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread out their clothes or spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means save now. And this is a fulfillment of another prophet, a prophecy of Psalm 118, 25 through 26. But that's what they would say about him. Now, how do you get that to happen? Well, okay. For the wow factor, maybe nobody knew this psalm, but you could have a couple guys in the crowd saying, Hosanna, you know? Yeah, Hosanna. You know, and everybody gets a great idea, and they all start chanting the same thing. Fine. I do this not because I'm going to ruin the wow factor, but because it's not important. It just isn't. The fact that these prophecies are being fulfilled is only Matthew's way of saying, again, I don't mean to keep hitting this, but that this is it. It's the time. Everything we've been told, everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to this. The lambs coming in. None of the lambs coming in that gate or none of the lambs that ever came through that gate ever took away the sins of the world. They never had the effect. They were all a foreshadowing or or a, a, a prophecy in and of themselves of what Christ would do. The Christ is going to come. He's going to be the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, his cousin said. He's going to be the one that takes away the sin of the world. Every time we slaughter lamb, every time we lay our hands on these animals and offer up sacrifices, our sin still remains. We're clear for the year, is all this means. But it still remains. There's still a reckoning for these sins. Nothing's taken away these sins. Every one of these things is a prophecy. Now is the time. Now is the time. This is it. This is the day. This is Palm Sunday. Save now. Save now. Where did they get the idea? There's no prophecy about trees and branches being cut down. There's no prophecy about clothes. That's not part of the plan. That's part of man's plan. Judas Maccabees was a a revolutionary. He led a revolt for the nation of Israel against their oppressors. And he was victorious, and he came in on a white horse after winning. And they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they laid their clothes and their palm branches down. See, that's what they thought Jesus was going to do. They're likening Christ, this Jesus, this great prophet that they've been following, and he's been healing and feeding us. He is the king They're thinking second coming. They're thinking this is it. The Roman yoke has been removed. He's Jesus Maccabees, basically. Judas Maccabees part two. But he's not. That's not why he came. But they think so. And so they cut down the branches. They begin to sing this. And that's one of the reasons we don't do Palm Sunday here. I know it's disappointing. You don't get the palm branch to hang up on your wall or see the little kids all coming down the aisle doing their thing. But I really don't want to emulate that. I don't want to teach them that because they're all wrong here. None of these guys were supposed to be doing this. This isn't prophetic. This isn't something that was supposed to happen. They're doing it. 
with the idea that he's going to throw the Roman yoke off. And he's not. And our kids know better. Now, if we ever want to do Revelation, Revelation, there's a bunch of palm branches waving. It says, Hosanna, Hosanna. Well, we could do that one. But we're going to do that one when we get there. But for now, no, this is kind of a mistake. It's a prophetic mistake in the sense that they're going to get it wrong and they're going to say this, but, or the, he is going to save now, but not like they think, you know, he's saving now from their sins. So again, another fulfillment. So Matthew's saying now is the time. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. And the word moved there is like a seismic earthquake kind of thing, but not like the earthquake when he died on the cross. Um, this is more like it was that big of an uproar, like everything shut down. The whole city was like, who is this? There was so much yelling going on as he's coming in. And there's so much well, branches and clothes and everything being thrown down on the ground. And here he comes. Who is this guy? Who is it? Like, oh, you know, someone important's here. And so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, yeah. They never quite get it right. P- Peter did. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He, oh, Jesus was excited to see that come out of someone's mouth. Yes, Peter. Good job. But for the rest, it was like, who do men say that I am? Oh, well, they say you're a great prophet or you're John, like reincarnated and all these things. John back from the dead. And for the most part, people thought he was just a really great prophet. What a great guy. Lots of powers. Gifts, abilities, things he could do. The Holy Spirit's upon him. But he was a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so, verse 12, instead of going to the palace where the Romans are, he goes to the temple where his father lives, where his father's to be worshipped. This isn't where they thought he was going to go. Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And said to him, do not hear what these are saying. Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? There's his dig again. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. That's Psalm 8, verse 2. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. And he lodged there. He stayed there. Now he's going to go in and out of the city several times this week to do these things. So it's his first day, the day that the Lord has made. So, if you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. So we can see this prophecy. Daniel is one of the young men that was taken captive into Babylon. He was one of the brightest. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were his buddies. Daniel was one of them. Daniel wasn't with those three for the most part, but one of those four real bright young guys. And he prophesied and was able to interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and able to do some crazy things. And, and, and then he also, well, he also prophesied and wrote many, many things about what would come, what was going to happen. And one of them was about the Messiah and when he would come. He was given a revelation by God while they were in Babylon. Good time to get some information about the Messiah. You're in a low place as a nation. You're not in your homeland. It's nice to know that God's not done with you and that he's going to restore you and things are going to continue and God's plan is still unfolding. And so that's one of the reasons you get this moment here. And he begins in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. In other words, you have 70 weeks for Israel These are weeks of years, not weeks like we think, weeks of years. So it's 490 years you're going to have until all of this is finished. In other words, everything, the world is done. And the new heaven, the new earth, and the second coming of Christ 
That's what he means. That's what this prophecy is about. 70 weeks, 490 years. That's the total. Now he breaks it down in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So a total of 69 weeks of years. The street shall be built again, and the wall, and even in troublesome times, and after that 62-week period, so the seven-week period, and then after the 62-week period, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. This is one of those prophecies they had a tough time understanding. Messiah's saviors, God's anointed, aren't supposed to be cut off. They're supposed to rule and reign, put the crown on, and everything's supposed to be better. They're here to fix things. They're not here to die. But that gives us 69 weeks. We're missing that last week of years, that seven-year period, that final seven-year period. But he says the Messiah is going to come at the 69-week mark. That's the first time. He's also going to come the second time after the 70th week. The Messiah comes and finishes. That's what verse 24 is all about. After 490 years After that 70th week of Daniel, this prophecy, that's when we finish transgression. That's when we make an end of sin. That's when we make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, no more prophecies, and to anoint the most holy. That's when he gets to be king. But there's a thing that has to happen first, and that's why verse 25 is written. At the 69-week mark, something unusual is going to happen. A mystery is going to take place. Paul writes over and over throughout the New Testament, this mystery of the church, this mystery of this wild olive branch grafted into the root of Jesse. Israel is the natural olive branch. It just naturally comes from Jesus, the root of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. It's, It's a natural thing. But then there's this wild olive branch that gets grafted in. That's you and me. That's the church. You've got this church age taking place between 69 week, the week 69, and the 70th week. There's this church time. It's like a pause. It's like a everything's put on hold. And the prophet writes the best he can. How do I describe this? There are 490 years determined, 70 weeks for the nation of Israel. But then there's this other group. There's this opportunity for the Gentiles to get saved, which is spoken of over and over in the Old Testament. Even the Gentiles will come to know the Lord. Even the Gentiles will get saved. In fact, the whole Exodus thing was all about telling Egypt that he's the one true living God so that they can all get saved. And many Egyptians came out with Moses. Ethiopians that were slaves came out with Moses. It wasn't just Jewish people. It was everybody that believed and put the lamb, the blood on the doorposts of their their homes. This is that moment, the times of the Gentiles. It's always been a mystery. It's always kind of strange because it really does follow Jesus. The Bible follows Jesus. It follows Israel. And then there's us. I mean, it's a big us. There's a lot of people that get saved. That wild olive branch is a big branch. I'm very grateful for it. And that's where we are. That's where we are in history. That's what's happening. This day of chapter 21 in Matthew is the day. The Coming of the Prince is a book written by Sir Robert Anderson. I'm just going to read this because I've, I've written it down several times. And um, thankfully, it's, it's already pre-printed in my Bible now. Um, I used to have to write it all down in, in that one of those back pages, you know, and keep it all there. But Pastor Chuck was gracious enough to put it right in there for me now, so I can read right out of it. But I want you to know this. You understand how miraculous. Now, this is, this is the wild prophecy, <laughs> is this. Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book and did the timing. And the title of the book is The Coming Prince, and he calculated 483 years. That's 69 weeks of years, 483 years. If you go off of Babylonian captivity, that decree that was written for them to go and rebuild Jerusalem was March 14th, 445 B.C. Break it down to a 360-day Babylonian calendar years times 483 years. You come up with the number, uh, where did he put it? 173,880 days. 
This turns out to be April 6, 32 AD, which is the day Jesus came in on the donkey. It's to the day. That's a wild prophecy. That's hard to explain. And so he got the mode of transportation right, and he got the people to say what he wanted to say. But in order to pick that day, he would have had to figure out what day he was going to be born. It's a little bit out of his control. He would have had to make sure that uh, the lambs were coming in through the sheep gate on the same day that he was supposed to come in. Now, today's the day, but it's like a Tuesday. It's not the right time. It's kind of a bad day for this. It's today or never. And that's the thing with this prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. It was today or never. And so if this didn't happen, which is one of the questions you can ask folks in Israel now, which there's a veil over their eyes. We know that scripturally, a spiritual veil. It's hard for them to see. They can't see. Some get saved. Some just don't see it. But if that prophecy had to happen for the Messiah and it hasn't happened yet, can it happen? Isn't the time past? Isn't it over? It's too late. It was all a myth. It was all... And it's a hard one for them. A very hard one. No, it happened. And that's the wow prophecy here. To the day he comes in on the donkey. So we don't have to have that doubt as to whether we're following fables or stories. Some of the disciples would write that. We have not followed followed cunningly devised fables. These aren't tricks, you know. These aren't things that books that man wrote and we've all been duped and we're just following some failed philosophy, no better than any other philosophy out there, no. We have these prophecies that are just his fingerprint upon his text. This is God that wrote this. And he wants us to know that so that when they come to pass, it's going to come to pass whether you believe it or not. And that's something he says over and over in the New Testament. I don't really care if you believe me. I mean, I want you to believe me, but if you don't believe me, it's not going to determine whether I'm true or not or whether it happens or not. It's for you to know that I know. It's for you to see it happen and say, wow, the fingerprint of God is upon the text of this that I'm reading. What we're holding in our hands this evening, our scriptures, are written by the creator of the universe. Now you see why we started off with respect for listening. There is no greater book out there. There is no more important text to read. There is nothing that comes close to what we're looking at right here. It's amazing. It is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. It discerns our hearts. I come in and I sit down in a Bible study, and it takes me a long time when I go to a conference or something. That's usually the only time I ever sit down and listen to someone else teach is at a conference. It takes me a while to get my mind there, you know. And I get irritated with the guy. I'm a critic. I'm a horrible critic. I listen to him. I'm like, oh, come on, man, get to it. And you guys probably do the same thing with me, and I'm sorry. It's just when you're up here, it's different. And I try to remember that. Oh, yeah, he's up there. He's trying to get comfortable. He doesn't know where he needs to be. The people are making funny faces at him like me, and I'm looking at him going, hurry up and get to the point. But when he begins to read God's word, everything changes. My heart changes My demeanor changes. My mind changes. I'm right there. I'm present in the moment. I'm listening. There's something about his word that's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. He begins to read God's word without any of his commentary and his extra drivel, and it begins to discern my heart. Now, why is he reading that chapter? Why did he pick that to study? Why is he sharing that this evening? Or why is he sharing that this morning? Or what? Okay, God. I begin to have my own conversation with the Lord at that point. I got it. I'm hearing you. You know, It's a discerner of hearts. So as he goes in to this triumphant and fulfilling all these prophecies, amazing to the day, cleanses the temple, overturns the tables, makes room for the ministry that needs to take place there, isn't concerned with the Pharisees or the Sadducees not getting along or not feeling welcome. I don't go down these roads too far. I don't want to because I think they make their own point. 
But Jesus is concerned about those who need to come to the house of God and want to be touched by him. They're not concerned about whether they felt welcomed or whether they felt appreciated or whether they were served properly or we had the right creamers evolved for them. With the temperature of the coffee or was there decaf or were the bathrooms suitable? None of that mattered. They came because they had broken hearts. He cleared out, flipped over tables, got everybody out of the way so that they could come and get ministered to by God. And they got ministered to by God. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, there's a lot going on there. They would change the money funny. The ratio wasn't quite right. Um, well, your lamb has a, a spot. It's got a blemish. I'm sorry. Boy, you came. How far did you come? You came all the way from there? <laughs> then, and then to have your lamb not certified, that must be really frustrating for you. Lucky for you, I've got one for sale right over here. Now, we'll take your, you know, defective lamb, and uh, we'll sell you this one for your lamb, which is hmm, probably worth a buck. But you can buy this one over here for 10 And these are poor people, you know? That's the best lamb they had. You know they brought the best lamb. Nobody wants to go back home and get the right lamb. They brought the best lamb. And God honors that and respects that and sees their heart. And they would do this over and over again, just lining their pockets. And Jesus knew that. And so he flips them over and gets rid of them, gets them out of the way. They were in the court of the Gentiles. There's a place for the Jewish people to worship, and then there was not a place for us wild branch people. That's us, the court of the Gentiles. And they could come and seek the Lord also. And these guys could care less about the Gentiles or us, the wild branch people, and they would set up in this place where they're supposed to have a quiet place to be able to pray and seek the Lord. And there they were, and all you could hear was chatter and bickering and arguing and, and conniving and, you know, get out of here. Flips it. And they're furious with him. Don't you hear what they're saying? They saw all the good works he was doing, and they were indignant. That's just classic, classic Pharisee. So he leaves town, and he comes back in the next day. Now in the morning, verse 18, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again, and immediately the fig tree withered away. Matthew took note of that. It's a small horticultural miracle, you know. But he's like, it was weird. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it was so weird. It happened so quickly. We're there, and he says, no fruit. Oh, what happened? And they say that. Well, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Verse 20. What was that? Okay, we're going back into town now. Don't say anything. Normal stuff here. Just killed a tree. All because there was no fruit on it. Now, did Jesus lose his temper? I mean, the poor fig tree. You know? Sorry, I was hungry, you didn't have any food on us, so you're dead. That doesn't sound like Christ, right? It's obviously symbolic. See, the fig tree is the tree of, of Israel that represented. They would, they, would, they would study there. They would study under the olive tree, the fig tree, the fruit trees, and all that. It's supposed to be fruit, not just leaves. As a Christian, it's easy to grow leaves, it's easy to look healthy and strong and vibrant and provide yourself shade, you know. That's a whole other thing when you have fruit for other people. Christians are only here to produce fruit. The gifts of the Spirit, Paul writes about this in the Corinthian letter, um, the first Corinthian letter. They were a Spirit-filled church. Man, they could do tongues. They could do all these cool stuff. All these gifts of the Spirit. But Paul says, you're lacking fruit. You got a bunch of leaves but you don't have any fruit. Love, it, you can you get a resounding gong every time you do the pro. Oh, wow, look, he's speaking in tongues. Isn't that amazing? And it is. Tongues is amazing when it's used properly. It's absolutely for today, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, but you've got to have fruit. We spoke on this on Sunday. Jesus is looking for fruit. Fruit is different. I can do all sorts of stuff to a tree. I can, I, I, God's gifts are given. So like if I speak in tongues, God doesn't look at me and say, wow, that was really cool. Because he did it. He gave me the language. Or he gave me the interpretation. Or he gave me the gift to heal. Or whatever gifts that I was in operation. That all came from him. He's not saying, wow, that was amazing. You know, patting himself on the back. I was just a, 
a hose meant to bring God's gifts. Fruit's different. Fruit I want to see. Fruit I expect from you. In Matthew chapter 3, earlier on, 17 chapters ago, verse 7, John the Baptist said, the axe is laid at the, at the base of the tree because if there's no fruit, we're hacking it down. It's a waste of nutrient-sucking, worthless leaves. We need to be producing fruit because we're going to whack it down. That's just symbolic. Israel, you were meant to be an example. Old Testament study time, always. We picked Israel not because you were great, not because you were mighty or better than anybody else, but because I just set my love upon you, God says. And to be an example to the world of what it looks like for you to be my people and for me to be your God, and that they can have it too was the idea. Just watch us, and this happens, and then you guys can come and have this also was the whole idea. But they got it. They started, oh, the Gentiles, they're gross. No, I picked you to get them. I'm using you to find them. I'm bringing in all the lost sheep. I want everybody to come. I want them to see this beautiful lady. I want them to see me say stuff for you. You respect me and listen. And you begin to do exactly what I tell you to do. And how, wow, look how that works. But they were rebellious and they treated God with disrespect and they didn't do what he asked them to do. And you have to punish them and take them to Babylon. And that sets everybody back in the Gentile world going, man, I don't want him to be my God. When he gets mad, well, he takes you out. It was always frustrating. Do you remember how many times Moses or any of these guys would have to pray? God, don't lose your temper, God. You're going to blow your witness with the world. They all knew it. They all knew what the purpose was. And so it comes to this day, and he says, I'm about done. Because if I don't start seeing fruit, what is the point of all this? I'll use the wild olive branch instead. Now, Don't get me wrong. I do not believe in replacement theology. And if you don't know what that is, praise God. It's garbage. It's the idea that the church has replaced Israel with all promises meant for the church. That's not true. There's a 70th week of Daniel. We get grafted in now because they were rebellious and disobedient. And God says, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to use the Gentiles for a while. This church age period that we're in, Paul goes over that in great detail. You can read that in his letters and what that means and what that looks like. He says, but don't get arrogant, you Romans. Paul writes to them, just because you're in there doesn't mean that you're always in there. If he cut off the natural branch, you don't think he can cut off the unnatural branch, the wild branch? He could certainly do that to you, so don't get arrogant. And if you if, if you're going to be cut off, don't you think he can, if you were grafted in, don't you think he could graft them back in if he's going to? So he wanted to make sure everybody understood that. No, replacement theology is garbage. And Paul made sure to put that in Scripture. God made sure to put that in Scripture. It's a temporary sideline for the nation of Israel. But it's our opportunity. Their rebellion produced our opportunity, and we're thankful for that. It's amazing how pressure can be brought in and be used by God like that, for our good. So, let no fruit grow on you again. I I wanted it. Luke chapter 13, verse 6, you can read it. It's about the tree. Hey, we got to cut this tree down. He goes, no, let me cultivate it. Let me try to produce. We got to get fruit out of this thing. Let's not cut it off too soon. Maybe there's something else we can do. We planted an orchard out at our new place and put the trees in first and put the wire in the next day or the day after. The deer got it right in between those. In a 24-hour period, stupid rat deer, which are so beautiful to gaze upon as they trample through our orchard, and stripped it to a twig. Three of our trees, just a twig. I'm like, oh, you know. No hope. Well, we built the fence around them anyway, and out of the top of that dumb little twig, a couple leaves sticking out. I'm like, okay, okay, all right. We can do it. It'll come back. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And that's what Luke 13, 6 is all about. Don't give up on it yet. Cultivate it. Let's see what happens. And so the Gentiles have this beautiful Messiah now, and we talk about our heritage in Abraham, and we talk about 
our wonderful leader Moses and all this, and the Jews get jealous when you talk about that. The Israeli people said, those are, those are our guys. Well, they're our guys now too. They're still your guys, but they're our guys now too. And it makes them thirsty. That's why we're salt. It makes Israel thirsty for their Messiah. And they will come to know him. When we get to the book of Revelation, you'll see that. The book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, is that 70th week of Daniel. And it's coming soon, very soon. You can see all eyes on Israel again. We're, we're always watching Israel, aren't we? There's a reason for that. The apple of God's eye, he's always watching out for them. Anyway, it's coming. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. He said that a couple times. As a pastor, I don't know. I mean, I know that it's true, but it's like, I still can't make a tree die. I can't, definitely can't move a mountain. And that's probably good, because what would we all do if we had that ability? We'd be killing all the trees. And we'd be, there'd be no trees left, and we'd be moving mountains. I didn't want it there. I wanted it over here. You know, so he's put some limits on it, because we would be some landscaping fools out there, I think. Anyway, he says, no, this is just done by prayer and by faith. Pretty powerful. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people confronted him. Here's the examination of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said, I'll also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? He always tricks them. They can't say this. They can't say one or the other. And here's what they say. If we say from heaven, then he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Why did you hate John if it was from God? If we say it was from men, not from God, and the multitude who thinks he's a prophet, thinks John was a prophet, they'll kill us. So their answer was, well, we don't know. <laughs> then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, if you're one of the 12, you're like, yeah. You like those moments when he just shuts them down like that. And so he does. But he gives a parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They both changed their mind. But one actually showed up on sight. And they said, The first, who said no, but eventually went. He said, surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots or prostitutes entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward repent or relent and believe him. Now, <laughs> that's pretty blunt. Tax collectors and, prop- or, and prostitutes are going to get into heaven before you do. They're ahead of you. Because they're the ones that were rebellious, but they changed their heart and walked towards God. As opposed to those who grew up walking towards God and ended up walking away from him in their older age. Um, that's the parable here. And that's you guys, he says. That's you guys. Here's what I like. Why are there 5,000 people congregating to Jesus? Why are there 4,000 people congregating to Jesus? Why did everywhere he go, people were drawn to him? It's because of these guys. It's because of these Pharisees and Sadducees and elders. You can't go to church because they're there at the doors. And they know you're a prostitute and they know you're a tax collector. Matthew knew this of all people. I remember when he said that tax collectors were going to get in before prophets. That was an important day for me. I was a tax collector. This is one of those things where the pressure of evil men not where they're supposed to be, but kind of are in the way, in, in the sense that in God's economy, these Pharisees and Sadducees ended up being at the door of the temple, which would drive people away, but it also drove them towards Christ. They, they serve their purpose. They don't know it, 
but they serve God's purposes. I need to get everybody saved, and you guys aren't doing it, so I'm going to let you go full-bore Pharisee on everybody, and they will all go out to the wilderness and find John the Baptist, and they'll find Jesus, and they'll all get healed, and they'll all draw close to God, and they'll all get baptized, and they'll all get saved. So I'm okay with the Pharisees and the Sadducees not being there. I think we should be okay with that. They serve their purpose. These folks, the tax collectors and the heathens and the sinners and the prostitutes, had no place else to go but Jesus. That's all right. That's all right. I would love all churches to be right and solid and biblical and doing what they're supposed to be doing. But if people are moved away and say, I I can't go there, I can't go there, all I can do is go to Jesus, when... Total win. This is a win. Verse 33. Here another parable. He's still talking to the Pharisees. There was a certain landowner who had planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Take care of this. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Looking for fruit again. And the vine dressers took the servants and beat one, killed one, stoned another. Yet he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the those vine dressers. And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to uh, other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Just what we taught. If Israel won't do it, I'm going to find some new ones. You Remember, Stephen, which one of the prophets didn't your fathers kill? You killed them all. God kept sending messengers, and you'd kill them, and then you'd feel bad about it. And so you'd make a statue. Well, we loved Isaiah. Oh, Zechariah was amazing. Oh, we loved all these prophets. Didn't you kill them? We did, but we were kind of off that day. But we like them now. And he'd look at all these revered men and talk about all these great prophets, and we'd read the great prophets. But wasn't it your grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers that killed them? Oh, yeah, it was. And that's the men he's sending. I'm looking for fruit from you, Israel. I'm looking for fruit. And if you don't produce fruit, I am going to lease the vineyard to somebody else. And I'm going to let them produce fruit. So as we watch Israel fail miserably, and the leaders of Israel fail miserably at producing fruit, but very good at producing leaves, we'd best take heed tonight and hear it. Because He's moved the responsibility during this church age to us to produce fruit for him, not leaves. And if I'm still just a leaf producer and there's no fruit in my life, I can guarantee the axe is laid at my feet right now. We've got to be fruit producers. This isn't meant for us, meant for us to go, ha, 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 that's how we got in. No, it's meant for us to be busy about what he expected from them and should be expected in us to produce that fruit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, long-suffering, patience, kindness, joy, self-control, and many others. I, I don't know the song like the kids do, but read it. That's the fruit that needs to be coming from my life, and it can only come from the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. God expects it. Have you never read the Scriptures, he said? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so at the end of this, he claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. I'm not like one of the prophets. Those were all the servants that came to get fruit, and you killed them, and you stoned them, and you cast them out, and you beat them. But finally he sent the Son. That's me, Jesus says. For those that say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God and just a prophet, well, that parable says otherwise. I am the son of the vine, the vineyard owner, okay? Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, it's better to fall upon the rock of Christ than to have the rock of Christ fall upon you. 
be broken. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, geniuses, they perceived that he was speaking of them. (laughs) Sharp as tacks. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So their solution was, he's talking about us. He's prophesying about us. He's telling us where's the problem. We should kill him. Just like he said in the parable. They plotted to kill the son. We should kill him. How do you get there? How do you not see it? They were so concerned about public opinion. And they ruled by public opinion. And that's why they had to get Pontius Pilate to be the, the, the lynchman, to be the, to be the executioner, because if they did it, they're going to lose face. You've got to get him to do it. And so that was the plan. Ironically, as the beginning of the seven-year Great Tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel begins in Revelation chapter 6, Actually, it's a little bit before that, but they actually say, the people of the world actually say, we pray that the rocks would fall upon us because the great wrath of God is upon us. We pray that the rock would grind us to powder. And I don't ever understand that. The Messiah is here, just like we've always talked about him coming. And if you knew that, and you know that that's why he's here, you know that you can repent. You know that you can turn towards him. But instead of doing that, they say, I'd rather have the rocks fall upon me and grind me to powder than to actually deal with what I need to deal with when I come to God. I encourage you. It may be a hard thing that God's going to bring you to his throne for. He may want to call you into his room and talk to you about certain areas of your life. That's a hard conversation, but it's far better to have that conversation than to not have that conversation with him. Let him correct you. Let him chastise you. Let the rock, let you fall upon that rock. It's far better to be honest and upfront with the Lord about things in your life that need to go or need to change and let him do that in your life. Their solution was to kill the messenger, to kill the words, to stop plug their ears, and to just kill this Messiah as opposed to hearing him. That's the most respectful thing we can do. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for all the people. You are telling them and giving them everything they need to know. You're not concealing anything from them, and they all understood it. But because their will or because their hearts are hardened and they choose to be blind, they can't be healed. They can't be changed. They can't become more like you. They can't be softened. The fruit of the Spirit can't grow in their lives. God, help us not to be these people. Help us to read this, to hear it for ourselves. We made fun of them a little bit tonight, but we could easily be in their shoes. Help us not to be in their shoes, Lord. Bless these folks as they go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. If you need to get alone and talk to somebody about one of these things, maybe. Um, it doesn't go beyond my ears. It doesn't go beyond anybody's ears. We'll, we'll listen and we'll pray with you. And I want you to know that we're alongside of you. We're sinners also. And if you need that, we'd be glad to pray with you.